0: The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio.
1: We are bringing you an eyewitness account of what's happening on the Wilmoth Farm, Grovers Mill, New Jersey.
2: conferring with someone. Can't quite see who. Oh, yes, I believe it's Professor Pearson. Yes, it is. Now, now they've parted, and the professor moves around one side, studying the object while the captain and two policemen advance with something in their hands. I can see it now. It's a white hexade tied to a pole. Flag of truce. If those creatures know what that means, what anything means... Wait a minute, something's happening. Humped shape is rising out of the pit. I can make out a small beam of light against a mirror. What's that? There's a jet of flame springing from that mirror, and it leaps right at that. the advancing men. It strikes them head on. Oh, Lord, they're turning into flames. Ah! Now the whole field's colored by the woods, the fire the, the gas tank, tanks of the automobiles, spreading everywhere. It's coming this way now, about 20 yards to my right.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, due to circumstances beyond our control, we are unable to continue the broadcast from Grover's Mill. Evidently, there's some difficulty with our field transmission. However, we will return to that point at the earliest opportunity. In the meantime, we have a late bulletin from San Diego, California. Professor Indelkoffer, speaking at a dinner of the California Astronomical Society, expressed the opinion that the explosions on Mars are undoubtedly nothing more than severe volcanic disturbances on the surface of the planet.
0: We continue now with our piano interlude. Mm, Listeners, it's me, Jack. That was a hoax. Do not head for your cars. Do not flee your cities in panic. It's just a joke. It is, of course, the famous Orson Welles production of The War of the Worlds, which, as legend has it, terrified a bunch of people who believed it was real. It wasn't real. It was a dramatization based on a novel by H.G. Wells a science fiction novel, although the term science fiction was not popularly used when he wrote it. This is our second episode on literary genres this month. Our first was romance novels, and as we saw with romance novels, a definition of a genre can be a little hard to pin down. If you go too vague, you include just about anything, too narrow, and you leave too many things out. We know it when we see it. It's often the definition we use, but we need to be a little more precise than that, don't we? So here's what we're going to do today. We'll talk about the pioneers of science fiction, the prehistory, as it were. We'll go through a Mount Rushmore of science fiction, my candidates for the four heads that should be carved into our mountaintop. We'll talk about the golden age of science fiction. We'll run through some international examples. We'll touch on the major themes that science fiction returns to again and again. We'll examine the popularity of the genre in books and television and films, and we'll see what we can make of all of this. For fans of the genre or casual onlookers, we'll see if there's a secret underneath all that science. I think there is. That's all coming up today on the History of Literature. (music) Okay, here we go. Hello, everyone. How are you today? I hope you're doing well. How are you? I am fine. (laughs) Those of us who used to write letters know how that one goes. Dear Grandma, how are you? I am fine. Oh, but I am fine. I surely am, and I hope you are as well. You know who wasn't fine? Those scared listeners of the radio in 1938, Halloween Eve. There's some dispute about just how much mass panic the broadcast caused but when you listen to the broadcast you can kind of see why it happened it's not campy or goofy it really takes its subject seriously and if you're if you're just listening casually you can be forgiven that broadcast got the news announcers right this is how they would act if such a thing were happening and who's to say it's not do you think in 1938 a listener would have believed That countries could blow up the world using the power of an atom? And humans would harness the power of the sun? That sounds crazy too. Space aliens landing on Earth is insane until it's not. Anyway, we are probably conditioned to it now, thanks to science fiction. We are ready to expect the unexpected. That's one of the great things that science fiction does. Some of its best writers could look at technology and see where it's headed and predict the future. There's fun stuff like time travel and moon colonies that make you think, and that's fine too. But the books that are 20 years ahead of their time or 30 or 40 or 50, that's good stuff. Aha, these writers say, we can do X now. We understand how to do X. Well, what will happen when X turns into Y, which is where X is headed? What will happen to what will happen then to individuals or to societies? Here's Carl Sagan on this idea that science fiction leads us toward the future, prepares us for it in a sense. Well, first of all, he talked a lot about how science fiction had led him towards science. How he enjoyed the way science fiction made him think about things, even the, bar- the Sorry, even the very basics. Mars would have a different day, a different year. That's not speculative. That's actual. That's based on the size of the planet and its distance from the sun, which is different from ours. How would that change things? He also was talking about why science fiction had some appeal, especially to younger people, and how that often led those people to learn more about science as he had. Here's the passage, quote, the greatest human significance of science fiction may be as thought experiments, as attempts to minimize future shock As contemplations of alternative destinies. This is part of the reason that science fiction has so wide an appeal among young people. It is they who will live in the future. No society on earth today is well adapted to the earth of one hundred or two hundred years from now, if we are wise enough or lucky enough to survive that long. We desperately need an exploration of alternative futures, both experimental and conceptual. The stories of Eric Frank Russell were very much to this point. We were able to see conceivable alternative economic systems or the great efficiency of a unified passive resistance to an occupying power. In modern science fiction can also be found useful suggestions for making a revolution in an oppressive computerized society, as in Heinlein's The Moon is a Harsh Mistress. Such ideas, when encountered young, can influence adult behavior. Many scientists deeply involved in the exploration of the solar system, myself among them, were first turned in that direction by science fiction, and the fact that some of the science fiction was not of the highest quality is irrelevant. Ten-year-olds do not read the scientific literature. In all the history of the world, there has never before been a period in which so many significant changes have occurred in so short a span of time. Accommodation to change, the thoughtful pursuit of alternative futures, is the key to the survival of civilization and perhaps of humanity. Ours is also the time of the first generation that has grown up with science fiction. I know many young people who would, of course, be interested, but in no way astounded, were we to receive a message tomorrow from an extraterrestrial civilization. They have already accommodated to that future. I think it is not an exaggeration to say that if we survive, science fiction will have made a vital contribution to the continuation and benign evolution of our civilization. A vital, end quote, a vital contribution to the continuation and benign evolution of our civilization. There we go. Sounds like something we should take seriously. This isn't just giant squids in space. There's something valuable here. Let's take a quick break and come back with more about genre number two in our study of genres for this Thursday theme this November, science fiction. Okay, so I've got about seven or seven, things, seven or eight things I promised you up front. Let's dive in. The pioneers of science fiction, proto-science fiction, prehistory, but I suppose we should get a definition out of the way. Here's one that works for me. Quote, a form of fiction that deals principally with the impact of actual or imagined science upon society or individuals. End quote. That's from the Britannica. That's a bit circular, Since we haven't defined science yet, although you probably know what it is, knowledge acquired by understanding the world around us. Technological advances, biology, chemistry, natural phenomena, facts, processes, the operation of natural laws, things, stuff. Not history, not philosophy, not love or hate or other abstractions. The stuff of the universe. History and philosophy and love and hate, all that can be in science fiction, of course. In fact, that's probably what makes the fiction good. Are those aspects of things? We want to see that in our characters or from our plots. We want to see how those things play into the impact of the actual or imagined science on the individual or society. We want to know, does it change our world? How so? Does it change us as people? Are people good, and will these changes bring that out? Or will it stifle our goodness? If we take our world and add X or subtract Y, what happens? That's the bonus. That's the extra. That's why really good science fiction is worth reading and takes a place on the shelf next to Anna Karenina and Great Expectations. But it's the stuff that makes it a genre, the science stuff. So where did this all begin? You can go back to the Greeks who were putting out works in the second century that used a kind of early form of science fiction to satirize their own world. Lucian wrote Trips to the Moon, which was really a disguised way to go after his government and society and religion without being prosecuted or attacked for libel. There were a bunch of travelers to the moon throughout the centuries. Cyrano de Bergerac had another famous example in the 17th century. On the moon, they had no hunger. In his version of it, they had no war. They had no disease. Not a bad place. The traveler then heads to the sun, where he meets a society of birds doesn't sound too plausible to us, but he was writing as if it were plausible. It wasn't just for laughs. Several other writers picked up on this trick, how you could send literary protagonists to far-off places and invent some monsters or different races of people. Sometimes this was the moon. Sometimes it was a far-off island halfway around the world. Sometimes it was the future. Gulliver's Travels of 1726 fits into this paradigm and a lot of other utopian and dystopian works from the 17th and 18th centuries as well. We skipped over some examples from the Middle Ages like the Arabian Nights and some others which have science fiction-like elements, but I think once we set aside satire, we can see why the genre really took off in the 17th century and beyond. We had the Scientific Revolution, we had the Age of Enlightenment, There were discoveries being made. Science was becoming a thing. We learned what gravity was, what laws of motion were, what light was, and how our planet fit into the solar system. We started studying things under microscopes. We learned about chemicals and how they interact, and the blood that flows through our body, and the way that the scientific method With hypotheses plus experiments in order to advance a body of knowledge that can be acquired and built upon, it was an exciting time. Problems could be solved. Previously unthinkable technologies could come into being. Mysteries had explanations. The secrets of the universe could be unlocked, and the imagination became unlocked along with it. Dreamers had a new way to dream. And sometimes those dreams could be nightmarish because along with a dream, you have a dreamer and that dreamer is a human being. And that human being has a view of other human beings, knows what they're capable of, for better or worse. So now we come to one of our Mount Rushmore figures, the first person I'm putting onto our mountaintop, Mary Shelley. Mary Shelley was 18 years old when she and her husband, the poet Percy Shelley, went to visit Lord Byron in Switzerland. A volcano nearby had caused some bad weather, and it was too rainy to go out, so Byron proposed a contest. They would all make up a ghost story during the day and read them to one another in the evenings. It's kind of an incredible moment in literature. We've talked about it before here on the podcast. Because one of the authors, John Polidori, Byron's doctor, Wrote. I'm sorry, did I say authors? One of, the, one of the visitors, I guess he was one of the authors of the ghost stories, John Polidori, Byron's doctor, wrote a story called The Vampire that later inspired Bram Stoker's Dracula. But we're focused on another monster that came out of those, those evenings, the one that young Mary dreamed up. And of course, I'm talking about Frankenstein's monster. It's a futuristic idea, but it was not a fanciful one. Mary thought this could almost be possible, given the technology and scientific knowledge of the time. This wasn't magic. This wasn't an abstract experiment. It wasn't sorcery for her. She had read about experiments that had been performed on dead frogs by Galvani, Luigi Galvani, whose name has come down to us through the term galvanization. Galvani liked to shoot electricity into things and see what happened, and he discovered that the muscles of dead frogs' legs twitched when you shot a spark of electricity into them. That was certainly interesting. And Mary Shelley said, well, let's take this a half a step further and imagine that science progresses a bit and we can use electricity to reanimate entire beings, dead beings. You can see where that isn't such a stretch. If a little current can make a frog's leg move, who's to say that you won't eventually figure out how to get a heart pumping again, or a brain thinking again. If you read the entire work of Mary Shelley, Frankenstein, you'll see what a role that science plays. It begins with letters from a man named Robert Walton to his sister. Walton is on his way to the North Pole, trying to discover the Earth's magnetism, the source of it, and make some astronomical observations. This is all about rationalism, all about science, all about the plausibility of the narrative to come. We start to trust our narrator that this guy knows stuff. Hang on to that thought for just a moment. And then, out there on the ice, Victor Frankenstein, emaciated Victor Frankenstein, comes up, pulled on a dog sled. Victor tells Walton the story of his education, his scientific studies, starting with an obsession with natural philosophy. He dabbles in alchemy for a while, and then he turns to real science, the study of electricity and galvanism, the rejection of pseudoscience or mystical beliefs, and instead the hardcore practical knowledge based on experiments and the world as it really was, not as one might dream it to be. And then the beauty of the work of Frankenstein, he finds his creation to be hideous. And we are now in a world where science fiction is so good at taking us, where we learn about ourselves as humans. Science fiction is not just gee whiz look at this cool stuff, look at these gizmos, look at these gadgets. But mm, what are we humans likely to do with this stuff? What are we likely to do when this happens? Okay, I told you to hang on to a thought. Did you remember to do that, listeners? (laughs) I'm imagining you drifting away, thinking about volcanoes and monsters and ghost stories and trips to the moon and twitching frog's legs. So I'll remind you. I asked you to remember to the idea of trusting our narrator, trusting that the person knows things, basing our narrative in a kind of plausible reality. This is the main distinction between science fiction and fantasy, or other forms of speculative fiction. We can take quite fanciful things, root them in the actual or the plausible, the concrete, the current scientific knowledge, and take you on the journey that way. And that will bring us to the next two heads on our Mount Rushmore. We'll have those figures after this. So we are now in the age of scientific achievement, industrial progress, the Enlightenment is no longer new, but in full flower. It has taken over a way of thinking. Frankenstein was published in 1818, opening the door. But Frankenstein is a book for grown-ups. It's not an easy read necessarily. It's not a pot boiler. It's not written for the masses. The story is the story works on that level. You could tell Frankenstein as a bedtime story, and it would be a a cracking good yarn. There were plays almost immediately that were big hits, even in Mary Shelley's lifetime. Film and television and comic book versions and condensed versions and graphic novels and so on are now totally commonplace. We can absorb Frankenstein without digging into the actual book with its actual prose. The book itself really wasn't written that way for the masses. A lot of people are going to. Read the book and say, as my wife does, I forgot there's so much about ice. (laughs) And then after 20 minutes, I'm still reading about ice flows. Those are notes she wrote in the margins of our copy. LOL, Ms. Jack Wilson. LOL. Or LMAO, which Ms. Jack Wilson spent years thinking meant leave me alone, oddball, which is kind of her credo. That's the motto on her. Personal crest of arms. Leave me alone, oddball. And then she married an oddball and added a couple of oddball kids to the mix. LOL. Okay, so enough suspense. Our next Mount Rushmore figure is a Frenchman, whom you may have already guessed Jules Verne. We might need to do a show on him, I think. He was born in 1828 and lived to 1905 and became hugely popular in his lifetime. There's an origin story that I love, and it might be a little exaggerated, but there's some real-life truth to it in any way. I love the story so much. I'm just going to go ahead and believe it and share it with you. The story goes that the young Jules Verne, an 11-year-old, had the idea that he was going to head off to the Indies to get a coral necklace for his cousin, Caroline. That's the kind of thing I dreamed of doing when I was 11, not for my cousin, but for girls with names like Caroline. Only Jules Verne was more determined than I was, or braver, or more foolish, or something. He got a spot as a cabin boy on a ship that was actually headed to the Indies. The ship sailed with him on board, but fortunately it stopped first at a port in western France, and Jules' father, Pierre, who had learned that young Jules had signed up as a cabin boy on his way to get this coral necklace, Pierre was able to board the ship and find Jules and bring him home. The story goes that he made Jules promise, from now on, you will only travel in your imagination. And that is what Jules did for the rest of his life, and it brought him wealth and glory. Only Caroline lost out, although maybe she got a coral necklace in some other way. One hopes so. Anyway, now, Jules has had, uh, had had another formative experience. A teacher who had taught him and his classmates at the age of five, she had lost her husband at sea. Her husband had been a ship captain who had been lost 30 years earlier, and instead of saying that he had died, she used to tell the class that he was on a desert island living as a castaway like Robinson Crusoe. It was a theme that fascinated Jules and one that he returned to over and over Jules Verne was supposed to be a lawyer and then he was supposed to join the military and instead he wrote as much as he could and hung around literary salons in Paris he arrived there in 1848 which was a year of revolution and Verne was excited by what was happening around him and by uh, Victor Hugo who he was reading was a big admirer of Victor Hugo and He started writing plays and he became friends with Alexander Dumas and his son. And soon he was making it as a writer. He was still not really writing science fiction. He was writing light comedies in these plays. His break came in 1851 when he met the editor-in-chief of a magazine who was looking for articles about geography, history, science, and technology. He wanted these stories to appeal to a wide audience. These weren't technical or scientific papers, but popular works, works people would enjoy. They were for people who wanted to learn something. There was a strong educational element to them. That's why people would pick them up in the first place. But they were written in a plain, straightforward style. And even better, place it into an engaging story. That was the idea, a spoonful of sugar to help the medicine of learning go down. Vern wrote one about The Ships of the Mexican Navy, his second one was about a voyage in a balloon, and Jules Verne was on his way. What excited him was research. He loved learning about geography and scientific developments, and he soon found a publisher who wanted to bring out these works in a longer form. The publisher was a man named Hetzel, who struck a deal with Verne. Give me three volumes a year, and I will pay you essentially a salary to do it. With the steady work and income, knowing he had an outlet for his writings, Jules Verne was all set. Hetzel told the world that Verne was going to write a series of novels called Extraordinary Voyages, or Extraordinary Journeys, and that his books would, quote, outline all the geographical, geological, physical, and astronomical knowledge amassed by modern science and to recount in an entertaining and picturesque format that is his own the history of the universe, end quote. Verne was influenced by other writers, of course, both in his taste for adventure and his application of science to the literary form. James Fenimore Cooper was one on the adventure side, and Edgar Allan Poe, our man Edgar, who I would have considered for this mountaintop if we hadn't already done five episodes on him just last month. I actually don't think he would have made it anyway, but I would have given him stronger consideration. Is uh, here we are. Edgar. He threw out some science fiction stories, too. Just, just like detective fiction, he sort of created his own genre because it made sense to him and his interests, and others jumped in after him, pushing the form further. But let's get back to Vern. He and Hetzel had some friction, creative differences, but their publishing partnership was very successful. Journey to the Center of the Earth came out in 1864. From the Earth to the Moon in 1865. 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea was from 1869. Verne wrote many books, and they were very popular. But he was kind of a whipping boy for critics, serious literary critics, who viewed his books as being popular and not serious. Writers like Zola did not approve Verne himself died believing he had been kind of a schlock artist, saying that he regretted he didn't take his place in French letters. This is this is too harsh. He has since been rediscovered. Today, he's much more celebrated. He's admired for his prose style, his storytelling, and his ideas. He's gotten the reputation of being something of a prophet, a scientific prophet, but he didn't see himself that way. He saw himself as a diligent researcher who immersed himself in science and stuck close to the actual and the possible. If he foresaw the future, he thought, it was only because he saw the science that would eventually bring it about. He didn't close his eyes and imagine a strange, impossible world. His eyes were open. Which brings us to our third member of Mount Rushmore, a man born about 40 years after Jules Verne, and this is probably the greatest figure in all of science fiction and the history of science fiction. We heard him alluded to at the beginning, H.G. Wells. He wasn't just a science fiction writer. He wrote dozens of novels, some of them straight literary works, and he wrote history books and social commentary and essays and short stories and biographies and everything else. He's another guy who will get his own show. I promise. But for now, we'll just talk about his works as a science fiction writer. The critic and essayist Brian Aldiss calls Wells the Shakespeare of science fiction. Wells's trick was to use plausible, actual, realistic details and then make one logical leap. You don't ask readers to keep suspending their disbelief over and over and over. You don't change the rules again and again and again. That might be a work of fantasy fiction. Science fiction, you ground everything in the actual. You have sane, rational people who are dealing with the real world. And then you make one jump. This is called Wells's Law. And it led Joseph Conrad to call Wells a realist of the fantastic. And Wells hit on some of the great themes of science fiction four for four in four miraculous years. Just imagine this. Listen to this. The Time Machine in 1895. The Island of Dr. Moreau in 1896, The Invisible Man in 1897, and The War of the Worlds in 1898. Time travel, biological engineering, invisibility, and alien invasion in four years. He also foresaw aircraft, tanks, space travel, nuclear weapons, and satellite television. But just look at those four themes again time travel, biological engineering, invisibility, or maybe we could say transforming one's physical self, and alien invasion, which might also be kind of like traveling to outer space. That really covers the field. And he layered all of it with his political views. He was a pacifist, and a progressive thinker, at times a socialist. His works are layered with utopian and dystopian elements. He wants to study humans. He wants to make you think about humans, both as individuals and in societies. And he had this kind of marvelous prose style that could make everything seem real and everything seem fascinating. Let's hear a little bit of this. Here's how the time machine begins. Not five chapters on the ice flows, clearing our throat to get to our story. These are for readers looking for a good read, an adventure, an experiment, an escape, but one that will make them think, too. Just listen to the first chapter of the Time Machine for the introduction, I guess. Hear how easily Wells takes you into the world of the hitherto impossible. He starts by calling his narrator the Time Traveler, which is a shock. What? Who? How does this person deserve that name? which is then followed by an explanation of this man who isn't crazy. It's not some cackling mad scientist, but someone who is smarter than most. Just as people are stuck thinking they can't fly into the air, although science is beginning to show them that they can, they are stuck thinking they can't move backwards and forwards in time. That's the explanation or the preface that this time traveler sets forth for us here in this introduction, but let's stop explaining and talking. Let's just listen. It is a thing of beauty. Introduction. The time traveler, for so it will be convenient to speak of him, was expounding a recondite matter to us. His pale gray eyes shone and twinkled, and his usually pale face was flushed and animated. The fire burnt brightly and the soft radiance of the incandescent lights and the lilies of silver caught the bubbles that flashed and passed in our glasses. Our chairs, being his patents, embraced and caressed us, rather than submitted to be sat upon, and there was that luxurious after-dinner atmosphere, when thought runs gracefully free of the trammels of precision. And he put it to us in this way, marking the points with a lean forefinger, as we sat and lazily admired his earnestness, over this new paradox, as we thought it, and his fecundity. "'You must follow me carefully. I shall have to controvert one or two ideas that are almost universally accepted. The geometry, for instance, they taught you at school, is founded on a misconception.' "'Is not that rather a large thing to expect us to begin upon?' said Philby, an argumentative person with red hair. "'I do not mean to ask you to accept anything without reasonable ground for it. "'You will soon admit as much as I need from you. "'You know, of course, that a mathematical line, "'a line of thickness nil, has no real existence. "'They taught you that? "'Neither has a mathematical plane. "'These things are mere abstractions.' "'That is all right,' said the psychologist. "'Nor, having only length, breadth, and thickness, "'can a cube have a real existence.' There I object, said Philby. Of course a solid body may exist. All real things, so most people think. But wait a moment. Can an instantaneous cube exist? Don't follow you, said Philby. Can a cube that does not last for any time at all have a real existence? Philby became pensive. Clearly, the time traveler proceeded, any real body must have extension in four directions. It must have length, breadth, thickness, and duration. But through a natural infirmity of the flesh, which I will explain to you in a moment, we incline to overlook this fact. There are really four dimensions, three which we call the three planes of space, and a fourth, time. There is, however, a tendency to draw an unreal distinction between the former three dimensions and the latter, because it happens that our consciousness moves intermittently in one direction along the latter, from the beginning to the end of our lives. That, said a very young man, making spasmodic efforts to relight his cigar over the lamp, that, very clear indeed. Now, it is very remarkable that this is so extensively overlooked, continued the time traveler, with a slight accession of cheerfulness. Really, this is what is meant by the fourth dimension, though some people who talk about the fourth dimension do not know they mean it. It is only another way of looking at time. There is no difference between time and any of the three dimensions of space, except that our consciousness moves along it some foolish people have got hold of the wrong side of that idea. You have all heard what they have to say about this fourth dimension?' "'I have not,' said the provincial mayor. "'It is simply this, that space, as our mathematicians have it, is spoken of as having three dimensions, which one may call length, breadth, and thickness, and is always definable by reference to three planes, each at right angles to the other's.' but some philosophical people, have been asking why three dimensions particularly, why not another direction at right angles to the other three, and have even tried to construct a four-dimensional geometry. Professor Simon Newcomb was expounding this to the New York Mathematical Society only a month or so ago. You know how on a flat surface which has only two dimensions, we can represent a figure of a three-dimensional solid, and similarly they think that by models of three dimensions they could represent one of four, if they could master the perspective of the thing, see? I think so, murmured the provincial mayor, and knitting his brows he lapsed into an introspective state, his lips moving as one who repeats mystic words. Yes, I think I see it now. He said after some time, brightening in a quite transitory manner. Well, I do not mind telling you I have been at work upon this geometry of four dimensions for some time. Some of my results are curious. For instance, here is a portrait of a man at eight years old, another at fifteen, another at seventeen, another at twenty-three, and so on. All these are evidently sections, as it were, three-dimensional representations of his four-dimensioned being, which is a fixed, an unalterable thing. Scientific people, proceeded the time traveler after the pause required for the proper assimilation of this, know very well that time is only a kind of space. Here is a popular scientific diagram, a weather record. This line I trace with my finger shows the movement of the barometer. Yesterday it was so high, yesterday night it fell, then this morning it rose again, and so gently upward to here." Surely the Mercury did not trace this line in any of the dimensions of space generally recognized, but certainly it traced such a line, and that line, therefore, we must conclude, was along the time dimension. But, said the medical man, staring hard at a coal in the fire, if time is really only a fourth dimension of space, why is it, and why has it always been, regarded as something different? And why cannot we move in time as we move about in the other dimensions of space? The time traveler smiled. Are you so sure we can move freely in space? Right and left we can go, backward and forward, freely enough, and men have always have done so. I admit we move freely in two dimensions. But how about up and down? Gravitation limits us there. Not exactly, said the medical man. There are balloons— But before the balloons, save for spasmodic jumping and the inequalities of the surface, man had no freedom of vertical movement. Still, they could move a little up and down, said the medical man. Easier, far easier down than up. And you cannot move at all in time. You cannot get away from the present moment. My dear sir, That is just where you are wrong. That is just where the whole world has gone wrong. We are always getting away from the present moment. Our mental existences, which are immaterial and have no dimensions, are passing along the time dimension with a uniform velocity from the cradle to the grave, just as we should travel down if we began our existence fifty miles above the earth's surface. But the great difficulty is this interrupted the psychologist. You can move about in all directions of space, but you cannot move about in time. That is the germ of my great discovery, but you are wrong to say that we cannot move about in time. For instance, if I am recalling an incident very vividly, I go back to the instant of its occurrence. I become absent-minded, as you say. I jump back for a moment." of course, we have no means of staying back for any length of time any more than a savage or an animal has of staying six feet above the ground. But a civilized man is better off than the savage in this respect. He can go up against gravitation in a balloon. And why should he not hope that ultimately he may be able to stop or accelerate his drift along the time dimension or even turn about and travel the other way? Oh, this, began Philby, is all... "'Why not?' said the time-traveler. "'It's against reason,' said Philby. "'What reason?' said the time-traveler. "'You can show black is white by argument,' said Philby, "'but you will never convince me.' "'Possibly not,' said the time-traveler. "'But now you begin to see the object of my investigations "'into the geometry of four dimensions. "'Long ago I had a vague inkling of a machine.' To travel through time, exclaimed the very young man, that shall travel indifferently in any direction of space and time, as the driver determines. Philby contented himself with laughter. But I have experimental verification, said the time traveler. It would be remarkably convenient for the historian— "'the psychologist suggested. "'One might travel back and verify "'the accepted account of the Battle of Hastings, "'for instance. "'Don't you think you would attract attention?' "'said the medical man. "'Our ancestors had no great tolerance for anachronisms. "'One might get one's Greek "'from the very tips of Homer and Plato,' "'the very young man thought. "'In which case, "'they would certainly plow you for the little go. "'The German scholars have improved Greek so much. "'Then there is the future.' said the very young man. Just think, one might invest all one's money, leave it to accumulated interest, and hurry on ahead. To discover a society, said I, erected on a strictly communistic basis. Of all the wild, extravagant theories, began the psychologist. Yes, so it seemed to me, and so I never talked of it until... Experimental verification, cried I. You are going to verify that? "'The experiment,' cried Philby, who was getting brain-weary. "'Let's see your experiment, anyhow,' said the psychologist, "'though it's all humbug, you know.' The time-traveler smiled round at us. Then, still smiling faintly, and with his hands deep in his trousers' pockets, he walked slowly out of the room, and we heard his slippers shuffling down the long passage to his laboratory. The psychologist looked at us. "'I wonder what he's got.' Some sleight-of-hand trick or other, said the medical man, and Philby tried to tell us about a conjurer he had seen at Burslem. But before he had finished his preface, the time traveler came back, and Philby's anecdote collapsed. <sighs> Isn't that good? It's Arthur Conan doylean in, in its readability. Okay, H.G. Wells nailing all the major themes or coming close. Utopias and dystopias, alternative societies, alien encounters transformation of the human, bioengineering, time travel. Some other themes you'll find today would include space travel, of course, outer space, sex and gender issues, parallel universes, robots are big, and the technology might be moved forward a bit as we've learned more about DNA and the atom and dark matter and other things. We not only have planes now, we have rockets And we aren't limited to a Newtonian universe, but an Einsteinian one. But for the most part, Wells showed the way. He's the OG on our Mount Rushmore. So who's left? Mary Shelley, Jules Verne, H.G. Wells, and who's the fourth? I've already told you that it's not Poe. And we've skipped over some other early examples like Voltaire and Swift, and Lucian. And it's not going to be Arthur C. Clarke, or Isaac Asimov, or Frank Herbert, or Ursula K. Le Guin. There are some fantastic authors here. Robert Louis Stevenson dabbled in science fiction. Douglas Adams entertained it for a while, entertained us for a while. Robert Heinlein, I mentioned, Ray Bradbury, Philip K. Dick, William Gibson, Octavia Butler, we've done a show on her, and a couple on Bradbury, I think, if you look in our archives. Harlan Ellison, Butler's friend and mentor, who I also want to do a show about, he had a fascinating life. Aldous Huxley, got a long, hard look. Kurt Vonnegut, that was practically measuring the dimensions of his head for our sculpture on this mountain. Margaret Atwood is in the conversation. You may have other favorites as well. There are a lot. This is a great genre with many leading lights. So, oh, Edgar Rice Burroughs. mention him. He deserves mention too. Uh, but it's not him either. So it might surprise you that my fourth and final Rushmorean is not a writer at all. Let me give you a hint Remember how we said that the mystery writers of America called their prize the Edgar? Well, the awards at the World Science Fiction Convention are called the Hugo. Hugo Gernsback. Hugo Gernsback was born in 1884 in Luxembourg, and he came to America in 1904. He was an electronics whiz. He started a radio station and broadcast some of the very first television broadcasts in 1928. Before that, he started a magazine called Modern Electrics in 1908. He was just 24 at the time, newly arrived in America, but he was smart as hell and couldn't really be stopped. For the next couple of decades, he started a bunch of other magazines, appealing to amateur radio enthusiasts and other electrical and electronic hobbyists. And then, catching hold of the zeitgeist, he came out with a magazine that was aimed at lovers of those ideas, but who were looking for good stories, too. Amazing stories, one might say, and that was the name of the magazine. The first issue of Amazing Stories had a one-page editorial and six stories by Poe, Verne, Wells, and three contemporary writers. He liked to call these fiction, but it was the other name he coined science fiction that caught on more broadly his formula was 75% literature and 25% science and the audience loved them fans organized and Gernsbach was their leader he went through some bankruptcies and he started up some more new science fiction magazines he kept losing his magazine and then starting up new ones he ended up with one called Wonder Stories he sold that magazine too and he started up another one. He he had a tumultuous career as a publisher and a lousy reputation in the industry. Writers couldn't stand him. They thought he ripped them off. They thought he was a crook. He was a little sleazy. He didn't pay writers well, and he stole their rights. He himself tried writing stories, and the results were not good. But his magazine, that first magazine especially, Amazing Stories, was transformative. There's no denying that the stories in the magazine are what launched the genre as we know it today. These magazine stories led to the golden age of science fiction. They were there for a whole generation of young people to discover. That's sort of the joke about the golden age of science fiction. They say, what's the golden age of science fiction? Answer, 14 Get it? We call the 30s and 40s and 50s the golden age as magazines thrilled readers with stories about space travel and time travel and nuclear power and everything else. And this was the era of World War II and the Cold War. And we had Sputnik and all of that to kind of fill the need of science, fill the gap that that uh, our confusion and fear about the world was putting into place thanks to our existential threat, while science was there to fill that gap. And science stories were there too. But 14 is the golden age. That's what people say when they tell this joke. The golden age is that these stories hit you when you're 14, when you're looking for answers, looking to absorb reality, looking to make sense of it, and looking for something else too which is what I'll save until the end. I'll just say that it's not limited to the location where we've been today, England and Italy to France, back to England and to America, thanks to a man from Luxembourg. But there are Chinese science fiction magazines with circulations far beyond the ones in America. And there are examples from the Soviet Union and Brazil and Japan and Norway, all over the world. There are subgenres now, too, cyberpunk and biopunk and steampunk and uh, diesel punk and libertarian science fiction, feminist science fiction, gothic science fiction, military science fiction, very popular. Television had Star Trek and all of its progeny, and movies had Invasion of the Body Snatchers and Star Wars and all of their progeny, and I've seen some estimates that there are about 5 million science fiction books sold each year in the United States alone. Not as high as romance, the queen of genre, which is out there with 20 million, but enough to keep readers rolling along and writers cranking them out. I'm sure this changes as certain books hit the mainstream, whether it's The Martian or Wool or some other big splash science fiction book. And I'm not sure how ebooks have changed this publishing world, although I suspect that plenty of science fiction ebooks are being sold. Okay, what exactly are we getting from these books? We get to take in the science. It appeals to that side of us that likes learning things about our world, but that's not a complete explanation. We can get learning in straightforward ways from other sources, too. It's a straw man argument to say we don't all read or understand scientific papers or technical journals. There's such a thing as journalism that can explain things to us as readers, even younger people. We can learn science without science fiction. And although I love what I call the plus, whether that's characters or social commentary or revealing something about us as humans, what takes a genre book into the realm of high art, it's how good the plus is. I think there's something else we can point to as well. I think science fiction is popular and enduring and has its appeal to the 14-year-old as well as the 40-year-old is because it imparts something else to us. It has another connection to us. It awakens something else. It responds to something else in us. When you listen to that H.G. Wells story, you're taken away, and you start to think, what if, what if, what if? Wouldn't that be something? And you want to know about the rules of such a world. How would that work? Is it possible? And what would it be like? But you also just think, Imagine that. Imagine who we are, where we're living. Imagine what's around us. And this isn't a total escape, but it's one that encourages you to look more closely, not just at the the possible, conceivable world, but at the actual world, the world around us. We do fly in the sky. We do it all the time, millions of people a day before the quarantine. We did have someone on the moon. We do have people in space stations these things do come true. We can clone, we can bioengineer in some ways. But when you start to think about the amazing things that could happen, you can't help reflecting on the amazing things that already do happen. We have quantum entanglement, Einstein's spooky action at a distance. But we don't even need to get into the most mysterious or the most unknowable phenomenon. We can stay right at home. The atom is an amazing phenomenon. It's stunning. It's breathtaking and beautiful. So are the elements. So is the Earth, and so is the sun. It's not just a warm yellow thing in the sky, which is magical enough, but a dynamic natural phenomenon. 99.86% of the mass in our solar system, as big as a million Earths, a constant nuclear holocaust with 620 million tons of hydrogen being fused into helium every second. The energy that pumps out gives life to all of us. Don't worry, we have 5 billion years left of hydrogen to burn through and 130 million years worth of helium after that. The sun shoots out neutrinos that bombard the earth and pass through our bodies. 100 trillion neutrinos through my body, and yours, every second. I don't feel them, except when I think about them. I feel like I do. It's the same feeling I get when I look up at the sky, or imagine infinity, or hear about a fantastic voyage to a far-off place. It's a feeling of awe, and it's the feeling I get when science fiction is working at its best that's the secret. It's not just technology. It's not just the natural world. It's not just science. It's wonder. We go, that's going to do it for genre number two. We are rolling through November now on our Thursday themes. We hitch a ride on these themes and let them take us deep into the human heart and all the way on our rocket ship to Mars. So far, anyway. We'll see what our next two Thursdays have in store for us. We are the History of Literature, findable at historyofliterature.com, where I'm woefully behind on posting episodes as usual, and in my emails too. I'm so far behind, my apologies. You can find us at LitHub Radio and at the Podglomerate Network at www.thepodglomerate.com or on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. And of these, I would say that Instagram might be the best place to explore. That's new, and we are working hard over there with some hardworking people. So please do check us out. You can help the show at patreon.com slash literature and com slash shop. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening.